interventionist and he's the one that got the nomination and then beat you know beat Clinton in significant part on you know playing to those I wouldn't say an anti-militarism in his case but but a America first non-interventionism he played that card successfully and that tells you something about where the American public is Montgomery was the center of the domestic slave trade, and a lot of people that are in the Black Belt, their heritage goes back to those days, and I think that the structural poverty and the, and the political structures that are in place reinforces the kind of poverty that exists in the area. If we just get rid of Trump, and we just go back to the day before Trump, how were things then, yeah. Senator Warren and Senator Sanders, with our health care? with our job situation, with poverty. I don't want to go back to that day. Right. We've got to move forward, and we have to provide that vision and that leadership to make that happen. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. I'm Esther Averam. And this week marked the 15th anniversary of the U.S. invasion of Iraq, which killed up to 2 million Iraqis, displaced millions more, destroyed ancient cities and sites of cultural antiquity, and destabilized the entire Middle East. More than 4,000 U.S. soldiers were killed, thousands more were wounded, and all of that was done on the basis of a lie. Iraq had no weapons of mass destruction, as was claimed by the administration of President George W. Bush. Later in the show, I'll be speaking with Sam Husseini, Director of Media and Communications for the Institute for Public Accuracy, about this 15-year marker. Also, did you know that D.C.'s own homegrown music, Go-Go, just went home to the land of the drum, Africa? We have a report about the backyard band in Ghana. All that is coming up, but first our headlines. The U.S. Senate voted this week to not take up a proposal that could have ended U.S. support for Saudi Arabia's bombing of Yemen. The proposal by Senators Bernie Sanders of Vermont, Chris Murphy of Connecticut, and Mike Lee of Utah was defeated with 10 Democrats joining 45 Republicans to oppose it. The 10 Democrats are Coons of Delaware, Cortez Masto of Nevada, Donnelly of Indiana, Heitkamp of North Dakota, Jones of Alabama, Manchin of West Virginia, Menendez of New Jersey, Nelson of Florida, Reed of Rhode Island, and Whitehouse also of Rhode Island. Sanders expressed disappointment with the failure of the resolution, and activists who worked hard for its passage said that now more Americans know that the U.S. is complicit in Saudi Arabia's attack on Yemen, which has killed more than 10,000 people, bombed schools, hospitals, and vital infrastructure, sickened a million people with cholera, and endangered millions with starvation and famine. Despite the Senate vote, the peace movement kept up the pressure on the issue of Yemen as Saudi Arabia's Mohammed bin Salman was in Washington, D.C. this week for meetings at the White House and other venues around the city where he was met by protests organized by Code Pink. On Tuesday, March 20th, Ali Ala Ahmed addressed a rally outside the White House. 
It is important for the American people to know that their money, their soldiers are assisting in creating this greatest tragedy of our time. Mohammed bin Salman also has impressed our people on the inside. He has raised parts of cities. He has murdered children. He has executed our human rights activists and democracy activists, our poets, artists, brightest minds, professors, writers who are calling for democracy, human rights, and people's rule have been jailed for many years. Inside the White House, Trump finalized a $12.5 billion weapons deal with the Saudis. And that deal is on top of a $110 billion weapons deal with the Saudis that Trump announced just last year. The $5 trillion in counting that the U.S. has spent on wars, invasions since 9-11 was not one of the important topics of a national town hall hosted this week by Senator Sanders and featuring Senator Elizabeth Warren, filmmaker Michael Moore, and New School economist Derek Hamilton. Catherine Coleman Flowers, founder of the Alabama Center for Rural Enterprise Community Development, spoke about the poverty of the rural black community in Lowndes County, Alabama, where the population is sickened by open pools of untreated sewage. What I've seen since I've returned to the area, because I grew up in Lowndes County, Alabama, I've seen raw sewage underneath mobile homes. I have seen people invest in on-site septic systems that they are told by the state health department to purchase and is running back into their homes. We did a study with Baylor's National School of Tropical Medicine where we found evidence of tropical parasites, including hookworm in Lowndes County. And that is just an atrocity that at this particular time in our history, when we have these wealthy people, that we allow this kind of thing to take place here in the United States of America. The March 19th town hall titled Inequality in America, the Rise of Oligarchy and Collapse of the Middle Class was streamed live by The Guardian, The Young Turks, Now This, Act TV, and on Sanders' social media accounts. The online broadcast drew about 1.7 million live viewers, more than a similar town hall Sanders hosted on single-payer health care in January. The well-being and safety of Americans continued to be in the news in D.C. this week. The organization One D.C. held a community gathering called Cooperation D.C., that is encouraging the development of more worker-owned businesses. And hundreds of residents testified before the D.C. Council this week about changes to the district's comprehensive plan, which they say will exacerbate displacement of moderate and low-income residents, spur more gentrification, and take away rights from residents and elected officials to rein in overdevelopment. Attorney Tony Norman is one D.C. resident who testified. It's by no accident that developers and the development community that testified here today supported this bill because all of their recommendations are incorporated into the Office of Planning's recommendations. None of the amendments that we worked on with the community and the ANC, those 3,000, were incorporated. To me, the biggest danger of this bill, as it stands today, is to try to limit the citizens' right to appeal. They are essentially blaming the, 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 the tenants, the residents in the community for holding up housing, parks, and things of that nature. This is absurd. They're even insulting the courts by saying that they can be influenced by residents and not by the decisions and the rational basis that are not justified in its zoning commission. 
And turning from the issue of economic violence to physical violence, what is labeled as terrorism is back in the news as the Trump administration failed to characterize as terrorism those bombings that killed two people and seriously injured more in Texas. The suspect in the bombings, identified as Mark Anthony Condit, a 24-year-old white male, died Wednesday morning after he detonated a bomb inside his car as law enforcement approached him. The day before the suspect's death, White House Press Secretary Sarah Huckabee Sanders tweeted about the bombing, saying, quote, There is no apparent nexus to terrorism at this time, end quote. But members of the Black Congressional Caucus, including Texas Representative Sheila Jackson Lee, called the bombings terrorist attacks. Christian Christensen, a journalism professor at Stockholm University, said in a Twitter thread Wednesday morning, that, quote, U.S. media and politicians have been very, very quick to apply the terrorism label when the suspects are not white, because such an application carries no social or professional blowback if they are wrong, end quote. And the issue of gun violence will take center stage in D.C. this weekend on Saturday, March 24th, as tens of thousands are expected to attend the March for Our Lives, led by student survivors of the mass shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida. Chantel James has more. Half a million people are expected to converge for the March for Our Lives this Saturday, the 24th of March. Its organizers are high school students themselves, who will be marching under the banner of such slogans as Never Again. They have vowed that the Valentine's Day shooting in Parkland, Florida, that claimed the lives of 17 people at Stoneman Douglas High School, will be the last mass shooting in United States history. With the strength of their numbers, they want to send a clear message to lawmakers here that the days and the lives of children can be sold to the NRA are behind us. Marchers will meet at 12 noon on Saturday, March 24th on Pennsylvania Avenue between 3rd and 12th Street Northwest. For more information on how to join the march, visit their website at marchforourlives.com. From Northwest DC, this is Chantal James. Diverse contingents are expected to join the march including the Movement for Black Lives, highlighting this week's killing of Stephen Clark, a 20-year-old unarmed father of two killed by the Sacramento police while standing in his own backyard, and the assassination of Brazilian politician and feminist activist Mariela Franco. And finally in culture and media, D.C.'s own indigenous African-American drum-based music, Gogo, took a trip to Ghana, West Africa, recently. Lydia Curtis has more. The Gogo band sensation, Backyard, just completed a groundbreaking tour in Accra, Ghana, with a historic and spiritual performance at the Elmina Dungeon, where many of our ancestors were held and tortured while waiting to board ships to the Americas. I had the opportunity to greet them briefly at the airport when they landed in Accra early on a hot and sunny Tuesday morning. WPFW back to Africa, we live! That was Diallo Sumbri of the Adinkra Group, who dreamed of returning the Gogo Band to Africa and worked steadily for three years to make his dream come true. Along with eight members of the band, and their entourage of about 12 were members of the D.C. community. Diallo's mother, Nana McKinney, a prominent educator and a conned priest, and Linda Martin, who talked to me about her journey. 
I like the fact that Go-Go, the drumming from the Go-Go, the Congos and things like that. I want to see how it fuses with the African drum. And so that's what I'm excited about. This is Lydia Curtis in Accra, Ghana and Washington, D.C. Thank you, Lydia. And those are this week's headlines and happenings. When we come back, more voices from that trip when Gogo Music went to Ghana. Stay with us. Broadcasting straight from Ghana, Accra, on the eve of uh, Ghana's independence. I'm here with my new brother, another fantastic individual to show you the resiliency of this, these people, the talent of these people, and we're trying to build bridges. Shout out to Yellow Sunbury, back to Africa, backyard to Africa. Um, last day, we're about to get on the plane, but before we do, I had to give my man a shout out. Nwazi is a great designer, artist. We're going to build a pipeline from D.C. to Ghana, to Accra. But I want you to tell us, what does the independence mean to you on the eve of this wonderful celebration? Uh, actually, um, the independence, you know, um, our, our former president, Osajifu Dr. Kwame Nkrumah, he gained independence for us on 6th March 1957. And um, he was like, um, Ghana, our beloved country, is free and indeed free forever. Um, so we celebrate our independence. Tomorrow is going to be 6th March. And... Um, I'm telling you, um, this is to unite all black people and um, to um, bring um, brothers in the diaspora together. Um, also, ex-president, um, Lieutenant General John Rawlings, he was like, he said, he said before, he said it over again that um, blacks in the diaspora has the right to come here to celebrate our independence. Mm -hmm. So our independence, we're going to say, um, we have this song we used to say, um, Ghana, Ghana, Nyingba, that's in my local language. Ghana, our motherland. Mm. Ghana, Nyingba, 
mm. Ghana our motherland and we have this song on the 6th March of 1957 a great nation was born in West Africa in Africa called Ghana we had our independence that brought us freedom and justice oh yeah we need to proclaim Ghana Ghana is 50 Ghana congratulations Ghana Ghana is 60 let us celebrate Mm -hmm. So when we celebrated our independence, we calling out to our brothers in the diaspora that Ghana was the first West African country to gain independence. And truly indeed, Ghana, we we one of the peaceful countries in the world. Yeah. Well, it was one of the news here was that it was um uh, it was like unheard of they had robberies. You know, like it was like, it was like big news for someone to get robbed in, 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 a, in, a, in a crowd. And then they captured the guys while we was here. And I was like, you know, this happens all the time in America. And so on um, the eve of the independence, uh, the first um, um, sub-Saharan African country to gain its independence from uh, colonialism is Ghana. They are the star of Africa. And uh, unfortunately, when we went to Kwame Nkrumah um, Museum today, um, they acknowledged openly, of course I was aware of this, but for them to openly and publicly acknowledge this, and to the group, uh, many of the people who were un uh, unbeknownst to them, was that the CIA was actually responsible partially for the overthrowing of uh, Nkrumah. Kwame Nkrumah Museum tour guide. The coup we later found out in the mid-80s was actually funded by the American CIA <laughs> because of his socialist leanings and his attempt at promoting Pan-Africanism. So he was seen like becoming a threat to Western interests in Africa. In fact, it was through after some of the powers of the CIA were declassified before we actually found out. So, uh, a democratically elected leader of his sovereign nation. So you have outside influences. So even though we we are going to celebrate the independence, uh, what are the problems that the independence has not yet? The problem yet that the independence has not yet solved is that um, Osajifu Dr. Kwame Nkrumah he wanted to make Africa a very great nation, mm -hmm. and um, when he he passed away, um, the president that came on seat, they were just consuming our money. Mm -hmm. So therefore, um, we lack jobs. Independence needs to solve that. Lack of jobs. Um, our education system is very poor. I'm going to say that. A um, um, lot of street case. Independence needs to solve that. And one thing I'm going to emphasize on is that um, white people who come into this country need to pay taxes. Mm. They don't pay taxes. They don't pay taxes. I'm going to tell you that uh, I know of a Chinese man in my area and he owns a very big factory, a very big land. Mm -hmm. Can I, a Ghanaian, come to the United States to own such a land? Mm. A Ghana man can't go to the United States to own a land. You can't go to China to own a land. But he has a very vast land. He has his company on it. He has his He doesn't pay taxes. You know, when, when you came to Ghana, you were given um, um, a minimum day to stay, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, but when they come here, they don't check that. That is a great point, and I think that's something that we need to start with. Yeah, the independent needs to work on this. It needs to work for everybody. For everybody. Ghana is recognized as the gateway of Africa primarily because the slaves that went through the transatlantic European slave trade primarily came from Western and Central Africa through the door no return in Ghana. Today, Ghana has the largest population of black Americans 
than any other country on the continent of Africa. Mama Amicus is a black expatriate from New York who founded One Africa, Ghana's best kept secret, an African village style holistic oceanfront guest house and resort in Cape Coast, Ghana. And I hope that this is not just going to be a quick visit, but that you'll think about seriously about repatriating to the land of your ancestors. I've been here for the past 31 years along with Rabbi Kohain, who I came with in 1987. There were 16 of us that came. And of the 16 that came, there are now, there were seven of us that settled. In our community, currently, there are close to 300 Africans coming out of the diaspora, from England and from the Americas. One Africa was started in 1996 with my king man, Nana Okofu Itrikweku I, who was the Asafoheni in our village. And this land was granted to us, not by a man, but by the ancestors, by the universe. And I stood where you were sitting and asked for this, and they gave it to me. At some other time, I'll tell you the story, but we don't have time today. But just know that miracles occur here all the time. I love being here. When people ask me, why did I leave America? I do not like America. I love Ghana. Diallo Sombre, a Dinko group. So you need to understand that the simple act of you flying back over the Atlantic by choice helps to reverse things spiritually. Just the simple fact that you actually retrace your steps on your own and walk back through the door and then go back. And then to come here with, with Backyard, which is the only band that I can think about in D.C., one of the few musical acts that I think about really represents resilience. So we are here and this is about that thing. It's about beginning to reverse that as well as introduce everybody to just being an actor and what it can be for you. Nobody here is trying to convert you to do anything or to be anything, to move here, to buy a house here. We introduce you to Africa, and I know you're going to find your own magic. Some of y'all already think about your next trip. Some of y'all think about your next country. Some of y'all think about opening a business. Some of y'all thinking ain't never coming back. Some of y'all trying to figure out when it's only 75 degrees here to come back. Whatever it is you're trying to figure out, our job is to introduce you and then let you process it. Kimon Freeman, On the Ground, Ghana. On the ground, on the ground show.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. And this week marked the 15th anniversary of the U.S. invasion of Iraq, which killed up to 2 million Iraqis, displaced millions more, destroyed ancient cities and sites of cultural antiquity, and destabilized the entire Middle East. More than 4,000 U.S. soldiers were killed, thousands more were wounded. And all of that was done on the basis of a lie. Iraq had no weapons of mass destruction. 
Joining me on this anniversary is Sam Husseini, Director of Media and Communications for the Institute for Public Accuracy. His articles on politics, foreign affairs, public policy, media, and culture have been published in the Washington Post, Newsday, The Nation, Fairs Magazine, Extra, and numerous other outlets. Prior to joining the IPA, Husseini was media director for the American Arab Anti-Discrimination Committee, and he founded the Washington Stakeout and VotePack.org. Welcome back to the show, Sam. Good to be with you. Well, let's start with your thoughts on the anniversary of the invasion. I know that you're regularly in press conferences at the State Department. So what are your thoughts? Well, what's remarkable to me is that basically everybody who was an advocate of the invasion, most of the people who are major players in Washington foreign policy circles and politically generally, went along with the invasion of Iraq, whether we're talking about the current vice president, Pence, or the last vice president, Biden, whether we're talking about all the major luminaries on the Republican side, in spite of the fact that Trump won the presidency in large part because he you know, had this aura of quasi-isolationist and claimed that he was against the Iraq war, and Obama won the presidency in 2008 in large part on one speech that he gave against the Iraq war in 2002, although he later said he wasn't sure how he would have actually voted. And then he put in an entire cabinet, Clinton, Kerry, a lot of other people who voted to authorize Bush invading Iraq, in effect. So the entire foreign policy establishment pushed these lies that led uh, to war, that Iraq had weapons of mass destruction, that Iraq was tied to al-Qaeda and terrorism and posed a threat to the United States and so on. And even people in the political culture like Pelosi, who technically voted against war, still pushed the same lies, still said that Iraq probably had weapons of mass destruction or did have weapons of mass destruction. Not probably, they outright said that, but had some qualm with the way that Bush was, you know, pursuing uh, the war, something like that. And on the basis of that, those statements voted against it, but still allowed it to happen, didn't pursue legal mechanisms after the war and so on. So the entire political culture in Washington, D.C. of the establishment basically has these lies at their core and they're just swimming along and uh, has manifested other forms of interventions and regime change operations leading to disaster after disaster uh, in the Middle East and elsewhere. And I suppose one of the important things is that when Obama first took office, he had this policy of moving on. We're not going to look backward. Right. And what's amazing about that is that doing it that way uh, says, let's not look backward. Let's look forward. Well, Now, we have a CIA director nominee from Trump who is part of the torture operation. Exactly. And we're going to get to that. But I wanted to ask you about a recent exchange you had at the State Department. And we're going to play a little bit of that clip right now because you're one of the few reporters from non-corporate media in those press conferences. Should the U.S. apologize for regime change operations, for meddling in elections in in multiple countries through many means over the years? 
that is a uh, that is a big question. You're asking me about the entire history of the United States. Should we apologize? That's the question. Well, should we apologize for our government all should. around the world? No, no. I think that the United States government <laughs> does far more good than we ever do bad. And uh, certain people uh, in the United States and in other countries have a look uh, or have the perspective that America does more harm than good. I'm the kind of American that looks at it from the other way around. We do far more good. Uh, most Americans are opposed to the Iraq war. Mm -hmm. Should the U.S. government apologize for, and go put out by that podium, people who are in this administration who fabricated information to start the Iraq war? Look, I, 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 I get what you're getting at. You want to be snarky no, and Take a look back. No, hold on. I take a look. Real. Okay, and take a look back I want to get at real. the past 15 years. And Iraq is certainly a country that has been through a lot. So that was the back and forth between you, Sam Husseini, and the State Department spokesperson, Heather Nart. So, what, what's your reaction to that exchange? The majority of the American people are now against the Iraq War, and Trump campaigned against the Iraq War. So, and then she went on to justify the invasion of Iraq and took no responsibility for the bloodshed, the lies, the mayhem, the destruction, and so on. So this claim that the U.S. doesn't dictate to other countries and that right. somehow, you know, the, the big story is that it's a victim of Russian meddling when it's done so many things from, you know, overthrowing the uh, democratic electric government in Iran in the 1950s to taking out Aristide in the 1990s to interfering in Honduras just a few years ago. And these are just the things we know about, the things that are explicit. They're, they're targeting Venezuela now. Any regime that steps out of line, they find ways to try to undermine it. And even regimes that don't step out of line, they have all kinds of threats posed to them. Right. And then even if you look at Clinton's role and Susan Rice's role in Libya, and, you know, we can just go from place to place to place during this talk. But maybe we're fortunate that we're able to remember the lies told in the run up to the invasion of Iraq right now, because we have similar, you know, unproven allegations routinely made now against Russia or Assad in Syria, that there's this chemical attack that they want to pin on him, but they don't really have proof that he did it. And you don't really know the difference between truth and lie and a false flag attack and it's not just by the U.S. and U.K. you know governments, but also by Western news organizations. The same news organizations that let official misinformation drag us into Iraq and other wars. So I know that you were active in the opposition to the invasion of Iraq. I suppose the present moment must feel a lot like deja vu. And we've had a lot of like moments of deja vu in the past 15 years. Absolutely. And it's kind of gotten more complex in a way because you have... Trump, who the rest of the establishment sort of uses to say, well, you know, he's putting out all this dubious information and false information to somehow paint themselves as the guardians of truth. A friend of mine, Ali Abunima, I think is the person who coined the term Trump washing, so that the, the rest of the establishment, first and foremost, the, the major media, in effect, can paint themselves as, you know, the great fact checkers. So you see all of these huge pieces. There was a piece in the New York Times that listed dozens and dozens and dozens of things that, you know, uh, allegedly are false things that Trump said, and maybe that's true. And then they said some false things that Obama said, and then said something about Bush's lies about WMDs and said, 
Well, he, he presumably believed them at the time, so maybe they're not really lies, hmm. talking about Bush. And just the way that the establishment has let all of the Bushites off of the hook for the Iraq War and now are reincorporating them in part of the quote-unquote resistance to Trump. The lies about the Iraq War have never really stopped. Right. Like, there was an interview with Bush about the Iraq War, and the interviewer said, well, do you regret your decision or anything? He said, no. Saddam Hussein wasn't letting the weapons inspectors in. We had to move. That's exactly how the war didn't start. The weapons inspectors were in Iraq. They were saying, we need more time. And Bush said, you, you, ha- you know, it's just taking too long. I, I see an opportunity to target Saddam, get the weapons inspectors out, and let's start the war. That's how the war started. So Bush, exactly. you know, years later, was still lying about how the war started. Presumably that's something he knows <laughs> about. He started a major aggressive war. And Rubio, in the 2016 uh, election, in one of the debates, said the exact same lie. So you had this, you know, Republican field that was fire-breathing, pro-war, let's bond Syria, and so on. And Trump came in as this allegedly anti-interventionist. And he's the one that got the nomination and then beat, you know, beat Clinton in significant part on, you know, playing to those, I wouldn't say an anti-militarism in his case, but, but a America first non-interventionism. He played that card successfully. And that tells you something about where the American public is. The American public is sort of lost at sea and they, you know, try to get away from the establishment by going left with Obama and he leads them back to the establishment in large part. And then Trump has done the same thing from the other side. Right. You know, I, I actually heard something the other day that I had not heard before that the yeah the US went in based on a lie but that Saddam Hussein was also lying almost claiming that he had the weapons of mass destruction and i hadn't heard that before that that basically puts equal weight on both parties that Saddam Hussein was kind of bluffing yeah i, I know where that comes from i've heard it from people who follow the Middle East. Saddam Hussein made statements like, if you attack us, you will see rivers of blood, and so on and so on. Right. People took to mean as he was threatening to, that he had WMDs, and so on. That's not what he was saying. He was saying exactly what happened. If you invade us and break our country, which the U.S. did, that there will be lots of uprisings and suicide bombings, and so on and so forth. And that's what we're seeing. Right, uh, what, really. What Not only in Iraq, but just the yeah. whole destabilization of the Middle East. Right. So, if, you if, know, you go, if you go back, I mean, Saddam Hussein was an oppressive leader, but, you know, his statements over time, you know, saying that the original UNSCOM inspectors were spies, that turned out to be true. And then the original UNSCOM inspectors were withdrawn on the eve of President Bill Clinton's impeachment vote. People don't remember that. Uh, if you go back and look at all of the justifications for the war in 2002, Pence and others are like, you know, and the inspectors haven't been allowed in. Well, the inspectors haven't been allowed in because they were, in effect, used as part of the attack in the late 90s by Bill Clinton on Iraq. Okay. You know, hold that thought. Um, we're going to take a brief break, and we'll be right back. 
you're just tuning in, this is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. I'm Esther Averam, and I'm in conversation with Sam Husseini, Director of Media and Communications for the Institute for Public Accuracy, about the 15th anniversary of the Iraq War. Now, Sam, before the break, you were just talking about just all the kind of misinformation about how the war started, how all that misinformation has continued to circulate. Absolutely. I mean, I almost hesitate to call it anniversary. It's presumably a happy thing, and I almost hesitate to call it, you know, the Iraq War, even though I actually used the term when I was at the State Department, because, you know, it's it's how people talk. You know, the, the war against Iraq basically started in 1990 with the imposition of the sanctions that continued throughout the 1990s with periodic U.S. bombing. You know, there was the big assault in 1991 that they took out the water and the infrastructure and the electricity and so on basically started the country for 10 years and then went in for the kill with the invasion. That, that's basically the trajectory of it. And then they dismantled the entire government apparatus uh, and imposed a government that was based on sectarian lines. So mm-hmm. everybody, you know, was designated as a Shiite or a Sunni or a Kurd. So then they basically tried to eradicate Iraqi national identity. And so we've seen that with the whole trajectory of the Middle East now. They've, in effect, taken out another major secular state, Syria, uh, with the help of Saudi Arabia and Israel, the two main U.S. proxies in the region. And there's obviously massive collusion going on between Israel and Saudi Arabia in the United States. And, And the whole Russia thing is in large part a way of pretending that Russia is the great bad actor on the world stage so that it cleanses all of the crimes of the United States, uh, Saudi Arabia and Israel, and I'm speaking especially about the Middle East here, but but it applies more generally as well. And the the whole Israel aspect of the Russiagate thing has been totally ignored in in the main media narrative. That is... Exactly, in terms of a country that interferes with our elections. (laughs) Yeah, well, there's definitely that, but, you know, they caught Flynn on, you know, Flynn is pleading guilty, to perjury, <laughs> you know what the perjury is about. Exactly. It, 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 it's Just about tell, what, tell us. Yeah, it, it's about what, whether he's talked to the Russians about what. What was, the, what was the subject matter? The subject matter was that Netanyahu called Kushner on the closing days of the Obama administration, and the Obama administration was finally allowing one UN Security Council resolution uh, criticizing Israeli settlement building, and finally, you know, Obama and Kerry allowed that one resolution to go through after years of preventing and vetoing them. And Kushner told Flynn, call up Russia and the other members of the Security Council and get them to undermine this new Obama policy to delay the vote. And that's what Flynn called the Russians about. So it wasn't that the Russians were telling Trump what to do, at least in this case, which is the major case that they've got. It was Israel telling Trump what to do on its behalf. And Trump, you know, turning around through Kushner and Flynn and ordering the Russians to do something. And there's reporting in the Israeli press that they really tried, that the Russians tried to delay the vote, you know, in order to ingratiate themselves to the incoming administration. So the actual dynamics, the actual power dynamics of what's going on here and who's calling the shots and who constitutes a genuine threat to world peace is being totally obscured and inverted. 
So one of the things that I wanted to ask you about is, you know, if at this 15-year mark, is it possible to look at Iraq and what happened there as part of a plan hatched by neocons to be the first in the series of countries that they would destroy to supposedly remake the Middle East in a way that they wanted to in conjunction with Israel? That's a, a central, brilliant question that so rarely gets asked. So many people refer to, you know, the U.S. didn't have a plan, or they bungled this, or whatever. You go back, there are documents written by so-called neocons, by Richard Pearl and so on, um, in the 1990s, securing the realm is the name of the most famous one, where they basically talk about taking out the main secular governments, like Iraq, like Syria. You had Wesley Clark, Major General, saying that right after 9-11, they were saying, okay, we're going to take out, you know, first Afghanistan, then Iraq, then Syria, then Libya, and so on down the line. They had a plan. The plan is to decapitate these governments that they couldn't order around all the time. These governments, in many ways, were complicit with the United States. Iraq did U.S.'s dirty work in its war against Iran in the 1980s. The U.S. armed both sides you know, let them kill each other kind of thing. And that same pattern continues now in the Syria war. I don't think that the U.S. wants to see an end to the war in Syria, the U.S. establishment. They want the war to continue because they want to weaken and cripple these governments that might assert some level of independence. And they build up their toadies like like the Saudis and so on and so forth. So they get a total pass. Saudi Arabia is utterly obliterating and, you know, starving Yemen. Uh, Libya is now reduced to having, you know, slave markets and total, you know, chaos. And Syria and Iraq, the twin pillars in, you know, the central Middle East are both in chaos. And, and Egypt is in effect in chains. It's become a Saudi proxy with a military government there. The uh, coverage of Syria, I'm really struck because I I try to listen to a variety of media. I mean, even though I must say more and more, I cannot listen to corporate media for more than five minutes because like just for this week, for example, when all these things are happening that we're discussing, they're talking about Stormy Daniels and, you know, the fact that Trump congratulated Putin on winning his election. And, and the fact that he was warned not to. This is like the story of the week. And I'm like, oh, my goodness. I mean, I'm but when I look at the coverage of Syria, it's the same thing that you have a news organizations that really aren't doing their job or they're basically parroting the line of the State Department or whether you call it the deep state or whatever. And what's really happening in Syria is just not being covered. Absolutely. And, or, and, or it's being covered incredibly selectively. For example, virtually every State Department hearing that I've been going to, the spokesperson begins by talking about the horrors in Ghouta, the suburb of Damascus, that, that there are civilians living there, obviously, but has also been the source of shelling into Damascus right. uh, by uh, Islamist uh, terrorist groups. And this is supposed to be the, you know, the greatest you know, crime since, you know, the Nazis or something. The United States did at least as bad, if not worse, just last year in Mosul. Um, exactly. Th- there were the yeah, Islamic and- forces there, and they pummeled and bombed the crap out of that city, killing even, you know, Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International, which have grown increasingly conservative over the years, are saying, you know, there are likely war crimes here. 
And that was depicted as a great liberation, even though it's exactly. so, the same dynamic. It seems to me that Assad is in a he's been in a civil war in his country to reclaim his country against many extremists who had poured into his country. And you know, the U.S. wants to depict these people as all just rebels or people, his political opposition. <laughs> but if it is a civil war, then he has a right to fight for his country. You know, this is a sovereign state. Exactly. And this goes to, uh, I mean, I'm sure that Assad has committed war crimes, but this goes to the central paradox of how we in the West talk about countries like Syria. If Assad becomes open and democratic, chances are he's going to end up like Mossadegh, like Zelaya's, like Aristide. They'll find a way to take him out. The way that the United States has approached third world countries, if they attempt to be somewhat open and democratic and independent, they're going to take them out. So it, it almost forces a dynamic where these quasi-independent countries become more authoritarian. And, and so it gives these third world countries little choice. You either become a toady, like a lot of third world countries are, like Egypt is, for example, right now, or you become locally authoritarian to try to develop your own economic infrastructure. I mean, Syria had a good healthcare system, same as Iraq, same as Libya. They actually use their oil wealth to benefit their people and not primarily U.S. Western corporations. And so the U.S. seeks to decapitate that. And, and that's what we've seen so earlier you mentioned the nomination of Mike Pompeo to go to, he would go from the CIA to head the State Department and then Gina Hassel go from deputy director at the CIA to, to director of the CIA. So talk a little bit about those two nominations. Sure. I mean, you know, Tillerson, you know, seemed to be, have been a somewhat restraining force in terms of, you know, having a militaristic foreign policy. So now he's getting booted out. And Pompeo is a well-known hawk, former congressman, uh, very close to the so-called neocons, much more likely to be far more war-prone. So Tillerson has notably not filled in a lot of State Department positions. So now Pompeo will get to do that with very pro-war people and Haspel coming through. She, she was part of the structure in the Bush administration of the torture regime that they had in place and that Obama didn't prosecute. So now we're seeing a return to that. Yeah, I understand that she headed a, a site in what they called a black site in Thailand where uh, there was documented torture, and actually one person was even killed. But it's not clear whether she was hitting that site in Thailand at the time of the murder. Well, one thing that we do know that she did, and this really hasn't gotten enough analysis to, as to what was going on here, it's her name on the memo that destroyed the torture videotapes. That is, they videotaped a lot of these torture sessions and it's her name that went out over the in spite of the fact that the Senate, the committee charged with this, Feinstein did some decent work. Senator Feinstein did some decent work, but seems to have totally backtracked from it, was actually asking for these tapes. So she has 
ordered the uh, destruction of these tapes. Now, it's possible that the tapes were destroyed because they showed the gruesome nature of the torture. That's certainly possible. But it's also possible that the videotapes were destroyed because they showed the nature of the questioning. That is, most people don't realize. Like, like when Colin Powell gave his speech at the UN saying that Iraq had weapons of mass destruction, they didn't make everything out of whole cloth. For example, he cited that, that an Islamist operative said that Iraq was colluding with al-Qaeda. That's true. Sheikh al-Libi was tortured into saying that Iraq and al-Qaeda were colluding. He didn't say that at first. He only said that after he was tortured into saying it. So yeah. the question then becomes, do they torture by saying, you know, tell us if al-Qaeda is planning another terrorist attack? Or do they, in effect, say, we're going to keep torturing you until you tell us that Saddam Hussein is working with al-Qaeda. There's actually a word for this in the government. It's called exploitation of torture. And they actually have done this. That's the prime example of it. And I've asked Colin Powell about that. You know, did you know at the time that this information that you presented was extracted in this fashion? He denied it, and I guess I believe that denial. But his chief of staff, Wilkerson, has been very vocal about this. Mm. And so w people try to divorce torture from war-making. It's not. Torture is actually a tool. Or, you know, when people say torture doesn't work, that's not quite right. It does work. But it doesn't work in the way that its advocates pretend. You know, we've we got to get the information to help protect the American public. No, that's not how they use it. They use it to get false but useful information. Now, I'm kind of running out of time, but this week the Senate failed to pass a war of powers resolution that would have ended this U.S. aid for this horrific Saudi bombing campaign in Yemen which was started under the Obama administration. And so, you know, given this bipartisan support for U.S. involvement in these types of wars and conflicts, what do you think is the exit strategy that activists can win in here in D.C.? Well, I think we need to step it up. And there's obviously a constitutional question even more directly about U.S. involvement in Syria. U.S. is regularly bombing lots of countries allegedly to take out uh, groups that are affiliated with al-Qaeda. And it's just a justification for intervention and so on. But in the case of Syria, you know, so Sanders and Murphy and Lee, the three senators who co-sponsored that legislation with regards to Saudi Arabia bombing and, and starving, really, um, Yemen, they tried to do that because the U.S. is helping the Saudis, giving them targeting information, refueling their planes, and so on and so forth. And they failed in that. I think they got like 40 votes or something, so it wasn't bad. 44, right. 44. And 10, 10 Democrats sided with the Republicans to, to defeat it. Right. Well, uh, I mean, I, I think that, you know, activists in D.C. are in a privileged position where they have access to these people. I would have, I would have liked, I would like to see some filibustering going on on these issues, on funding these wars. That's certainly something that you know senators who sponsored that can step up their game. But you know, the Syria thing is even more direct because the U.S. has boots on the ground in Syria, and you can't justify their actions as saying we're going after Al Qaeda when they're targeting a secular national government 
in Syria right. inside yeah. the government, right? There's no justification. And I actually asked the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff this question um, when he was at the press club several months ago, and he totally bungled the answer. He even got picked up by the New York Times that they are claiming that the authorization to go after uh, al-Qaeda somehow allows them to go after a government that's at war with al-Qaeda. It's an absurd thing. When they, you know, go after allegedly Boko Raham and, or, or, or some Islamic groups in Libya or something like that, I think it, that it should be, you know, totally re-examined now. But it's even worse than going after Islamic groups. They're going after secular governments on right. absolutely no possible justification. It has nothing to do with al-Qaeda. They're fighting al-Qaeda. You know, the Syrian government of Bashar al-Assad has Christians and other uh, people in it. it you know, it, it has some sectarian basis, but it, it's totally opposed to al-Qaeda. Yeah, so this just goes back to our discussion a few minutes ago that it's just used to carry out this overall plan for regime change. Because, you know, there have been a lot of reporting out of Syria showing how we are backing groups that are affiliated with Al-Qaeda. <laughs> I mean, it's not funny. You know, it's just that, you know, at some point it just becomes so ridiculous that you you have to kind of like laugh or something to, you know, stay sane. So it's obviously not being used to target terrorism. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely true. And that's, I think, clearest in the case of Syria, that the U.S. is actually backing Islamic forces, uh, some of whom are terrorists and some of whom are affiliated with al-Qaeda, or are the al-Qaeda branch in that country, al-Nusra Front, which keeps changing its name, against a, a secular state. It, it's just so historically and clear, and it's absurd that, that they've gotten away with it. Well, on that note, we're going to have to leave it there. I've been speaking with Sam Husseini, Director of Media and Communications for the Institute for Policy Accuracy. His articles on politics, foreign affairs, public policy, media, and culture have been published widely. And I thank you for joining me today, Sam. Thank you. It's always a pleasure. Thank you, Esther. And that will do it for today's show. I want to thank again my guest, Sam Husseini. And also thanks to Chantel James, Lydia Curtis, and Kamon Freeman for their reporting for this show. Certainly as government officials and corporate media continue bellicose rhetoric toward the latest designated international enemy, let's remember that $5 trillion and counting has been squandered on America's longest war in Afghanistan and on the illegal invasion of Iraq, money that experts say could have been used to rebuild the crumbling infrastructure of the United States to convert our entire energy structure to clean green energy, provide debt-free public education for the next generation, and so much more. This is On the Ground, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital on Pacifica Radio. The music we played today included Pocket One and the Body Snatchers by the Backyard Band and drumming by local performing artists at the Cape Coast Dungeon in Ghana. You can reach us and listen to complete versions of our shows on our website, onthegroundshow.org. Please like our Facebook and Twitter pages at On The Ground Show. Remember, we're the Facebook page with a picket sign and the green lettering that says On The Ground, not that other page. And subscribe to our podcast on iTunes under WPFW On The Ground. I'm Esther Averam. Thank you so much for tuning in. Until next week, keep raising your voice. Peace.
another thing. <laughs> <laughs>